Welcome back. I know uh, I was gone last week. I know Ben uh, did a review. I asked him to do a sort of a review to bring us back up to speed because I've actually taught Romans 1 through 7. I know, I know, I should have taught Romans 1 through 8, but I only got through Romans 1 through 7 in a previous Sunday school class or discipleship class. You can find that on the website too if you want to go back and listen to the previous class. It's there. You just have to navigate through the the tabs on the sermon audio. And so I'm picking up in Romans 8, and uh, Lord willing, we will finish uh, the book. Obviously, if, if you're familiar with Romans 8 through 16, you know that I could teach a whole class on one chapter or <laughs> or three chapters. So obviously, we're going to be taking a little bit more of a flyover view than perhaps you would like. And, and you probably also know that there's quite a bit of controversial material in these, these chapters. So I hope you're ready to not only disagree with me potentially, um, but also to do so charitably as we give each other room on, on uh, matters that are important, but are not fundamental to our faith. So with that said, we're going to dive in here. This is a little bit of a outline of where we're headed. You can see I'm going to spend more time on Romans 8 and 9 and even 10 and 11 than I will on Romans 12 through 16. And that's, if you're familiar with these chapters, for obvious reasons, there's more difficult material in these these sections of the book. Um, It's not that they're more important than Romans 12 through 16, but the material is more difficult. Romans 16, for instance, is largely consists of final greetings. So, so yeah, so we're going to dive into Romans 8 today. We'll cover verses 1 through 17, and it's going to take us three sessions to get through this incredible chapter. But why don't we start with a word of prayer and ask that God would bless our time this morning and commit our hearts to Him as we dive into His Word. Let's pray together. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We praise you. You are the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God revealed in the Scriptures. We believe and trust in you and in your Son, our King and Savior. We come this day because he has saved us, and we give you all the glory. We come with hearts of gratitude and joy, joy in the Lord, joy in our salvation, and also eager anticipation. Lord, whatever is going on in our lives, Lord, we may be coming into this room with burdens that we're carrying, um, challenges that we're facing, sorrows that we're experiencing, and yet uh, we look forward to gathering for worship, for hearing your word taught and preached, uh, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to you with our hearts, joining with the saints in corporate prayer and, uh, and fellowshipping together, talking with one another, sharing our lives together. And so we pray for your rich blessing upon our time that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that your spirit nourishing and strengthening and our soul encouraging us and comforting us where needed, and also challenging, correcting, rebuking us where needed. And we pray for this morning as we dive into Romans 8, that you would cause your, your word to be like food to our souls, to be like mother's milk that nourishes us and strengthens us, and that we would have the illumination of the Spirit to understand what it teaches and, and us to have the softness of heart to accept it put it into practice in our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Just a little bit of review here and preview. Um, If we're just looking back on the, the context leading up to Romans 8, the first 17 verses of the book is Paul just saying, I want to come to Rome and preach the gospel to you because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in Romans 118, all the way through the end of chapter 5, he's really explaining what this gospel is that he is preaching. And at bottom is that the gospel is that unrighteous people can be saved from the wrath of God 
that they deserve for their unrighteousness by receiving the gift of righteousness or justification. And they receive it by grace through simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's Romans 1.18 through 5.21. And then when you get to chapter 6 and 7, really the emphasis to simplify it down is that those who receive the gift, gift of justification by faith, I know, apart from their works, they also receive other blessings, peace with God, a standing in His favor, the hope of glory, and that they receive new spiritual life. They're not only justified, but they die with Christ, and they're raised to newness of life, and so they must serve Him instead of serving sin. So he's really getting at that question, well, if I'm justified by grace apart from works, by simply believing, can't I just go on sinning? And he's saying, no, you can't. Uh, You've also been, you've died to sin and lived to God, and now you must obey him. All right, so now today, that brings us to Romans 8. And really, there's a sense in which Romans 8 is continuing on uh, the themes of Romans 6 and 7 but bringing them to this glorious conclusion. And as we move into Romans 8, his main point is that those who receive the gift of justification uh, can, they're able to, and must, right? They are obligated to obey God by the power of the Spirit who indwells us. Uh, And also emphasizing that the Spirit who enables us to obey God also is the Spirit of adoption, that He guarantees that we are the children of God and that we will inherit the glory to come with uh, Christ. So that's where we're headed. And I want to just start by diving in here. So if you have your Bibles, I have the text up here on the screen. This is in the English Standard Version as Uh, That's the text we use for our corporate worship, but you may have other versions, so feel free to read in your own Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. And uh, actually, if I could have someone uh, read these verses, Romans 8, 1 through 4, that's where we're going to start. So someone want to read that? All right, thank you. What's your name, by the way? Kyle. Kyle, nice to meet you, brother. 1 through 4. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did not did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies these sinners have. And in the body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did, did so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. All right, thank you. Okay, so just a a summary here of what these verses are teaching. So if you remember in chapter 7, he described this struggle, right? Uh, I do not do the things that I want to do. I delight in the law of God and my inner man, but I find in my body and my flesh a different principle. That my flesh wants to sin, even though I want to obey God, and I end up not doing the things that I want to do. I end up not obeying God the way that I would want to. And he sort of talks about this wretched condition. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says at the very end, thanks be to God, right? Who delivers us through Christ. And that leads us, leads us into this text where he's saying, essentially, despite this ongoing struggle with sin that he had just described in chapter seven, right? This inner struggle with sin, even as believers, Those who are in Christ are not condemned and are able to obey the law by the power of the indwelling spirit. And I'm going to explain uh, why I think that that's the teaching of these verses, but that's just a summary. Despite the ongoing struggle with sin described in chapter 7, those who are in Christ are not condemned and are able to obey the law by the power of the indwelling spirit. 
So let's look at verse 1 first. Just as a review, I'm going to read these verses again as we go along. But you can look at your text or you can follow along on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so obviously sin still remains within us, right? In our flesh. So you could say that as Christians we are still sinners. Even though you could also say we are saints, right? There's a sort of a now and a not yet reality here. Um, We have been redeemed, but not all the way yet until resurrection on the final day. So we're still sinners, as we saw in chapter 7. Yet, having been united to Christ by faith, when we trust in Him, we are united to Christ, we are in Christ. In Christ, now, we are no longer condemned by God. So let me ask you this. Does sometimes you feel like you are condemned by God? Right? You had a really bad day. You raised your voice with the kids. If you have little kids, you were impatient with your wife. You didn't read your Bible in the morning. And, you know, on and on. You get to the end of the day, you think, I was miserable. God must be really mad at me, right? <laughs> and you can kind of just see his frown on his, on your, his face. Well... There is a sense in which we can say that, you know, like any earthly father, you know, when your kids are disobedient, you're not pleased with them. And there's a sense in which we can please God or not please God. But in terms of our standing with him, right, we're his children. And all of our sins have been paid for. So we are no longer in a state of condemnation before God. There is now, because we are in Christ, No condemnation before God. He does not condemn us for our sins. So let that sink in, right? Every day we need to let that sink in. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, usually when Paul uses the word law, he's referring to the law of Moses, right? Sometimes more specifically the Ten Commandments. So, and then, but then sometimes it's like he's using the word law in almost like a play on words, right? And sometimes all he means by the word law is just simply a principle of operation, the way things work, right? Uh, the way something works. And it's confusing because you're reading law, 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 you're thinking law of Moses, and all of a sudden, There are times when he departs from that. And I think this is clearly, and most commentators agree, this is a a place in verse 2 where he's not using the law to refer to the law of Moses, but rather the way things work, a principle of operation. So you could say, the reason we are not condemned, right, for, the reason we're not condemned is that the person of the Holy Spirit has given us life. How? By setting us free from the penalty of death for our sin, which the law brought about when he united us to Christ. So how does the spirit of life work? What is the law of the spirit of life? The way the spirit of life works is he sets us free in Christ when he unites us to Christ from the law, from the way the law works, which is to kill us, to condemn us, right? So the principle of the law is to put us to death, to condemn us for our sin. The principle of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life, is to give us life, to set us free from the condemnation of the law in Christ Jesus. Right. So that's, that's I think, what he's getting at in that verse. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 3a. Okay, that just means the first part of verse 3. For, you say, well, how has the Spirit set us free from the law? How has the Spirit given us life when the, uh, whereas the law had killed us? Well, verse 3a, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So let's stop there and say, the law couldn't set us free from sin and death. Why? Because the law was weakened by the flesh? Well, in a sense, the law was weak. It could not set us free because 
we were in the flesh, right? And we couldn't keep it. So the law couldn't set us free from sin because the law just said, this is what you need to do, obey God. And then you go home and try to do it, and you can't because you're in the flesh, right? So if you want to see how that works, read the Old Testament. And you see, God gave to Israel the law on tablets of stone, but could they keep it? No, they broke it again and again and again because they were in the flesh. They were in bondage to sin. Now, of course, there were some in Israel that were regenerated by the Spirit. You know, in Elijah, David, Daniel, etc. But by and large, they were not. So they had the law, but they couldn't keep it. So the law was weak to deliver us, even though it was good. It's the law of God. It was weak to deliver us because of the flesh. You go to the next part of the verse. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I think to summarize, it's a kind of confusing language, but God set us free from death, doing what the law couldn't do through the agency of the spirit. Like he said, the law of the spirit of life has set us free. How did he do it? Well, first he did it by condemning our sin in the flesh of his son, in his son who had come in the flesh. And you say, well, that makes sense because the son of God took on human flesh. He took on a human nature. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Now, why does it say the likeness of sinful flesh? Because he wasn't sin. He wasn't a sinner, but he looked just like the rest of us. He had our nature, right? Just without sin. So that's why it says in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the son of God took on a human nature and then our sin was imputed to him and condemned and punished in Christ as he hung on that cross, right? So by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And I think he's saying our sin was condemned and punished in Christ, his son. So that's that's one way he set us free from death, right? Is that Christ took the punishment of death in our place. Okay, anyone want to follow up on that? Does that sound good to you? All right. But then, I think there's another piece to this. I think you could put an and here, because you see in verse 4, that there was a purpose to our, there's another aspect of our being set free. We were set free not only from the punishment of sin, right? Because our sin was punished in Christ. But we were also set free from the power, the enslaving power of sin. Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What I want to argue is that what that verse is saying is that another way that the spirit set us free from sin and death is not only by removing the guilt of sin through the death of Christ, but also by enabling us to be able to begin keeping the law, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? As we walk, not according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. Okay, and so the Spirit unites us to Christ, removes our guilt, and it is punished in Christ, and then He enables us to begin fulfilling the law. Now, Paul's already talked about this back in chapter 3, when it says that we died to sin and we walk in newness of life. And now he says, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So this has already been talked about, uh, but, but I think he's emphasizing it here through the lens of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit does, right? You remember the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. At the end of that, it says, and against such things, 
there is no law. This is the fulfillment of the law, right? So the Spirit doesn't lead you on some other track besides the commands of God. You know, some people say, well, the law doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. We're Christians. We're not under the law. Uh, we And you say, well, what does the Spirit lead us to do now? Well, to, to love God and to love other people. You say, well, isn't that the law? That's the fulfillment of the law. How do you do that? Well, you look at the commands of God. That flushes out how to do that, right? <laughs> don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery, etc. And you could flush those out even more. So the Spirit gives us the ability to keep the law. And isn't that what the new covenant promise was? I shall write my law upon their hearts. Or Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to walk in my commands, right? All right, now, I do want to clarify something though. This phrase, when Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, some people have interpreted this phrase as meaning, as basically meaning that referring to our forgiveness, referring to the fact that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and taken the punishment of the law. So that when it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, it's just simply referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And so if that's true, then what I was just saying while true, wouldn't be what Paul was saying here, if that makes sense. So some people see that phrase, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and they think that's the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us. However, if you look at that phrase, though, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, That seems to indicate that Paul's referring to a requirement being fulfilled in our lives or by us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by us rather than on our behalf. It's in our lives, I think. And that I think is confirmed when you see that this phrase, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us is followed up by the next phrase who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, right? So I think that when it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, it's not talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us. That's true. But rather, it's talking about the way that as we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, we will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We will present the members of our body to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, of course, you clarify, that's not going to be perfect, is it? Because that's Romans 7, right? (laughs) It's not going to be perfect. But there is a change in the person who is walking by the, who has the Holy Spirit, who is in Christ. They will begin to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You may have seen that very dramatically in your own life. Or for a period of your life, you hated God. You may not have even thought of it that way, but you're, you were hostile to him. And you didn't want to fulfill his commands. And then you were saved, and the Spirit changed your heart, and all of a sudden you find you have this hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you want to fulfill his commands. And so you look at his commands, and you strive to obey, and you see that you begin to be able to do it more and more. Well, I think that's what Paul's talking about here. More of a sanctification. Sanctification. Yeah. So it's a both end. On the one hand, how does the law, the Spirit free us from sin and death by punishing our sins in Christ as He died on the cross and by enabling us to fulfill the law? So we're no longer condemned by sin and we're no longer enslaved to sin. We're forgiven. Our sins are punished in Christ and we are freed. We're enabled to obey God. All right. So does anyone have questions on this before we move forward? All right. Does that make sense? Anyone feel like they want to, don't feel bad about pushing back and saying, well, I'm not sure what about this. Okay. Well, let's go to the next section. Would someone read for us Romans 8, 5 through 8? Someone read Romans 8, 5 through 8. 
Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. All right. Let me just summarize what I think is going on here in these verses. I think here, Paul is further explaining what he had just been saying in verses 2 through 5 about the Spirit setting us free from sin and death by condemning our sin in Christ and by enabling us to fulfill the law. He's further explaining that. And here in verses 5 through 8, he's beginning that explanation by telling us why, as sinners, we couldn't obey the law apart from the Spirit, right? You say, why did we need to be set free? Because we were like this, right? (laughs) Because we were in the flesh, and this is what the flesh does. So we needed to be set free by the Spirit. So this is sort of a, a beginning explanation of how the Spirit set us free. And the reason is because as sinners, we couldn't obey the law in our flesh. And we needed the Spirit to enable us to do so. So, if we look at verse 5, the first part of it, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the, of the flesh. So, um, what version was that that you were using, Michael? NIV. Yeah, so the NIV is going to translate the word flesh, even though the, the Greek word flesh can, can mean different things. Sometimes it just means your physical body, literally flesh. But other times it's clear it's meaning more than just your physical body, but rather the corruption of sin, right? So the sinful nature is how the NIV translates it. And I think in this context, that's clearly right. Flesh is sinful nature, right? That part of your humanity that is corrupted by sin. Apart from Christ, we are flesh, right? (laughs) We have a human nature totally depraved, corrupted by sin. As Christians, it's different, right? We, are, we have newness of life. So the flesh remains, but we are new creatures in Christ. But here he's describing people who live according to the flesh. And as you go through the context, you see that he uses different terminology to describe the people he's talking about. In verse 8, he describes them as in the flesh, those who are in the flesh. Here he says, They live according to the flesh. Why? Why do they live according to the flesh? Because they are in the flesh. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in an interpretive thing. But I think basically he's he's referring to unregenerate people. People who have not yet been born again of the Spirit. right? Who are not new creatures in Christ. They are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And so they are in the flesh. And because they are in the flesh, they live according to the flesh or the sinful nature. They are unregenerate, unbelievers. He's saying people who live according to the flesh, because they are in the flesh or unregenerate, will follow the thoughts and desires of the flesh. That's the sinful nature we inherit from Adam, right? So if they're in the flesh, they're going to follow the desires of their nature. They're going to follow the thoughts of their nature. They're going to be who they are. That's his main point in the first part of verse 5. The second part of verse 5, he says, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, again, the people who live according to the Spirit, if I had verse 9 pulled up there, if you look in your Bibles in verse 9, they are described as in the Spirit. So you have in the flesh, live according to the flesh. In the Spirit, live according to the Spirit. So if those who are in the flesh are unregenerate people, right? Then those who are in the spirit would be regenerate people, believers, right? So there's a a polarity here of unbelievers and their spiritual condition and how they live and believers and their spiritual condition and how they live. And he's simply saying those people who live according to the spirit because they are in the spirit, because they are regenerate believers, will follow the things the Spirit teaches and enables them to do, right? 
Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, that's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect, right? We're still going to sin. But he's saying there will be there will be a new reality in their life. They will follow the Spirit. They'll walk by the Spirit. Okay, so then verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And this is fairly simple, isn't it? Unregenerate people who are in the flesh and live according to the flesh, in other words, they do what the flesh, what their sinful nature thinks and desires, that will lead to death, right? Because the wages of sin is death. Now, that that part's easy to see and understand. What about the next phrase? The Spirit will lead those who are in the Spirit to do what results in peace and life. Now, what is he saying here? He's not saying that by following the Spirit, we earn eternal life and peace with God, right? But I think there is a sense in which he's saying that those who are in the Spirit, regenerate believers, as they walk by the Spirit, they will experience peace. And in the Bible, peace is not just like two armies that stop or the end of a war. If you've heard the word in Hebrew, shalom, that's the sort of Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word peace. And shalom was much more than just, you know, the ending of hostilities. It was an idea of well-being, right? Peace, brother. You're wishing someone well-being, wholeness, life as it was meant to be lived, right? So those who are in the Spirit and who walk by the Spirit, who follow the desires of the Spirit, that will lead them to peace, wholeness, well-being in life. Maybe some of you have experienced that. As, this, as you begin to follow the Spirit in your life, all kinds of blessings. It was like all the shattered pieces of your life started coming together and there was wholeness there, right? Peace. And ultimately, life. Now, I think here that just like sin leads to death, and you can say that's ultimately eternal destruction, I think life here would be eternal life. So that following the Spirit leads to wholeness in this life, blessings, and also eternal life. Not that they're earning eternal life by by living according to the Spirit, but rather that that's the outcome of their life. Those who are walking by the Spirit, where are they headed? At the end of it all is eternal life with Christ, right? There's a sense in which they have eternal life already, but eternal life in the sense of eternal fellowship with God in the new creation, even as he's going to go on to say in verses 18 and following. So, that's verse 6. And then verse 7 and 8. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is where theologians will talk about, on the one hand, total depravity, that sin corrupts every aspect of our being. Not that we are as bad as we could be, but that every part of us is affected by sin. Our mind, our will, our desires, our emotions, our bodies, everything is corrupted by sin. But they'll also talk about total inability. That precisely because we are totally depraved, we are unable to obey God's law as unbelievers. And sometimes that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think, well, what about, you know, an unbelieving soldier who jumps on a grenade to save his fellow soldier? Isn't that a good thing, right? And you say, yes, yes. You know, even Jesus talked about earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, even sinners. Not saying there's no sense in which an unbeliever can do a good thing, relatively speaking. But if you take God into the picture, then a good deed is much more than just, you know, relative. A good deed always starts with faith in God and a desire to honor him, right? If you take God out of the picture and you have an unbeliever who is rebelling against God, then every single one of their deeds, even their good deeds, are tainted by sin and selfishness and unbelief. And so in this sense, we could say that in the flesh, we are unable to do anything that pleases God because we need faith to even begin to honor God. 
And what Paul is adding into that picture here is that the sinful nature, apart from the spirit, apart from regeneration, the sinful nature is hostile to God's law, right? So there are many people who think that they are honoring God because they've made up a God of their own imagination and they've made up things that that God wants of them, right? And so they think, I'm pleasing God. And you say, but that's not what the Bible says God is like. And they say, well, yeah, but I could never believe in a God like that. My God is like this. And my God only wants me to do these things, right? Uh, But if you actually take God as he's revealed in Scripture and his will as revealed in Scripture, beginning with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his righteous commands, you realize our sinful nature is hostile to that, does not love God, and does not want to obey its law. So the flesh, the sinful nature, is fundamentally hostile and rebellious toward God, so that those who are in the flesh and live according to the flesh are going to be unable to please God because they will not submit to His law. That's what it says. The mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you think about it, think about your own remaining corruption. Think about how your flesh, your sinful nature, which is still there even though it's been definitively defeated and you are a new creation in Christ, but you think about it. Are you sometimes amazed at the, at the way your sinful nature is thrilled by things that are evil and wrong, right? When you know what you should do to do what is right, say, forgive someone who sinned against you, and you find that your flesh doesn't want to do that. This is what he's talking about. Our flesh is hostile to God. So if you don't have the spirit and all you have is you're governed by the desires of the flesh, you're not going to be able to please God, right? This is why in Romans 6, he says that we are in our natural condition, slaves to sin, right? Unable to please God. This is why we need the spirit to set us free so that walking by the spirit, we will be able to carry out the law, right? First of all, any questions on that? Or clarification or comment? Hi, Jessica. No questions, comments? All right. Oh, feel free to interrupt at any point. Just an interpretive question here. I just want to clarify here. What do the terms in the flesh, in the spirit, verses 8 and 9 mean? How do they relate to these terms? The mind that is set in the flesh and set their minds on the things of the spirit. How do they relate to these other terms, walk according to the flesh and live according to the Spirit? Just to clarify here, because the reason I'm doing this is because you could think, when you hear things like the mind that is set in the flesh, or walking according to the flesh, living according to the flesh, you could think, well, he's speaking to believers, and he's speaking about two different ways they could live as believers, right? But I, I don't think that is the case. While there is a sense in which we could say, yeah, as believers, we can live according to the flesh, or we could choose to live according to the Spirit. And there are other passages of Scripture which describe that. I think here, when Paul says that his Christian readers are, in verse 9, he says to his Christian readers, after all this discussion, he turns to them and says, you are not in the flesh. Right? So he says, but you are in the Spirit. And I think that sort of informs backwards everything that he'd been talking about. That he's indicating that only believers, only unbelievers are in the flesh and only believers are in the spirit. And in light of that, then those who live according to the flesh and set their minds in the flesh are unbelievers. While those who live according to the spirit and set their minds in the things of the spirit are believers. And so to be in the flesh would be roughly equivalent to being unregenerate. And to being in the spirit would be roughly equivalent to being regenerate or born again of the spirit. So in this passage, I think that all these, these, this terminology here refers to believers or unbelievers. It's not referring to believers and saying these are two different ways you could live. It's saying these are two different categories of people. And I think that becomes clear in verse 9 when he says, you, believer, are not like that. You are in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, right? 
Okay, any question on that? I think it also helps us to, to know that don't be surprised when an unbeliever, those living in the flesh, live like they're in the flesh. Right. Because sometimes, you know, we kind of get, how can you possibly do that? And it's like, duh. Right, right. Well, it's like, it's like, have you ever seen those, um, those pictures where there's like a hidden picture? And then once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? But there was a time when you couldn't see it. And <laughs> you could look at the picture and you're like, I just can't see it. But once you see it, you're like, how can you not see it? You know, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's like we've all been in the flesh at some point. Now, some of us, it was we were saved when we were very early, so we have very little memory. Some of us have much more vivid memories of that time that we spent in the flesh. But we've all been in the flesh. And so this was true of us at one point. Uh, and then the Lord saved us united us to Christ, and we were indwelt by the Spirit. And now it's like we look back and we go, how can you not see it? You know, <laughs> But it's only because, by God's grace, we have the Spirit. So that should be a reminder to us not to look down our long noses at people, even though that's just a constant temptation, because to us now, it's so clear, right? Calvin talked about faith as like a set of spectacles, right? That we're blind as bats. And all of a sudden, faith is like a set of spectacles. And now we can see everything through the lens of faith more accurately. But remember that before we were saved, we didn't have those spectacles. And that's how our unbelieving neighbors are right now. Okay. Romans 8, 9 through 11. Okay. Would someone read these verses for us? Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. All right. Let me just summarize here what I think these verses are saying. I think they're telling us basically that every true Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that even though sin remains in their mortal bodies, the Spirit is giving them life. That's the basic point here. And by the way, let me just point this out. If you were reading the Old Testament and you said, where does God dwell? Where, where would you say he dwell? I heard it, but the temple, the tabernacle, the language of indwelling in the Old Testament would have always related to the place where the, the manifestation of God's presence, the glory cloud of the Lord dwelt. And that was in the tabernacle and then in the temple, right? The movable house dwelling place of God, and then the permanent dwelling place of God. It's interesting that when you get to the New Testament, the language of indwelling is there still, but now where does God dwell? In us, right? This explains why the New Testament uses the language of temple to describe the church, right? We are living stones being built into a spiritual dwelling place for God. We are a holy temple in the Lord that's being built up. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ is the chief cornerstone. But, but we now, individually and corporately, are the dwelling place of God. Except, there is specificity here as to the person of God that dwells in us. Now in the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us by His Spirit. So the Spirit of God dwells in us, right? Okay, now, if we walk through this, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So I think, he's saying, every true Christian is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. And notice, by the way, that the Spirit is called the Spirit of God, earlier in the verse, and then later it's changed to the Spirit of Christ. Isn't that interesting? So, there's a sense in which the person of the Holy Spirit comes to us 
from the person of the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. And they dwell in us by the Spirit, right? You could say that Christ, our great bridegroom, though he is away from us, he is with us. He dwells in us by the Spirit. The Spirit shows us the mind of Christ. The Spirit pours out the love of Christ into our hearts, right? So the Spirit... The Holy Spirit indwells every true believer. If someone does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, they are not, they don't belong to him. That's what he says, right? And and therefore, we as Christians are not among those who he had been describing in the previous verses as in the flesh and who walk according to the flesh. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us and therefore we are in the Spirit, right? Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, how is Christ in us? By the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? He is the Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, instead of being in the flesh... True Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is the presence of Christ in them, have new spiritual life from the Holy Spirit, even though their bodies are still subject to sin and death. Okay, so if you had a YouTube video of a person being converted, born again of the Spirit, I don't know, maybe there is a whole YouTube channel (laughs) devoted to conversions. I don't know how they could ever know that. But if you had a video of someone actually being converted. Would you see anything? I mean, you may see like some outward sign, but you wouldn't actually, it'd be the same person. You're like, does his body change? No. If they're old, they're still old. If they're young, they're still young. If they have wrinkles, they're still there after their conversion. In fact, they're still sinful, right? They still have, the sin nature still remains, but something has happened to them. What has happened to them? The Spirit of God has invaded their life and granted them new spiritual life. He's created them anew so that now though sin remains in them, though the flesh is still there, yet they have a new fundamental identity. They are now in Christ and in Him they have new holy desires, new faith in Him. You're not going to see it from the outside, right? Uh, Though the body is, is dead because of sin, If they're on their deathbed, they're probably still going to die, aren't they? And they still have the remaining corruption. But because of the Spirit, they have new spiritual life. And that comes with both with righteousness. And I'm not sure here whether he's talking about imputed righteousness, that they have new spiritual life because they have been justified, or new spiritual life because they have been sanctified and now they keep the commands of God. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's both. I mean, we know they do have both. But there's been a change. You won't see it from the outside. The body is still dead. Sin still remains. But there is new spiritual life and a whole new trajectory. Okay, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so here... He's speaking of the future. He's saying, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is, you can't be a Christian without being Trinitarian, can you? Because even in this one verse, right? You have three persons, don't you? If the spirit, there's one person, of him who raised Jesus, there's a second person. And who is the him who raised Jesus? So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, God the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, God the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, you might think initially that He's talking about giving life to your mortal bodies, giving you new spiritual life. 
That could be the case. But I think more likely, if he's saying give life to your mortal bodies, what is he talking about? Resurrection. Future resurrection. He's saying, if the Spirit of God, by whom God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, is in you, then you can know. It's like a down payment, a seal, saying that one day, God the Father is also going to raise you from the dead by that same, by the power of that same Spirit. So he's giving us hope. He's saying, right now your body is dead because of sin, but one day, one day, even your body will have resurrection life like Jesus, right? Man, that's, that's glorious news, right? Because you don't see it on the YouTube video. Right? <laughs> Nothing happens right away. And you might be discouraged by that. But this is the hope. Okay, the last section here. Would someone read verses 12 through 17? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as son, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right. Summary. I think you could sum up what Paul's saying here in this way. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is what he had just mentioned. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit who also identifies us as God's adopted children. He's the spirit of sonship. We Christians must then refuse to indulge the flesh, which only leads to death. All right, so he's, he's speaking of two things here. He's speaking of the adoption we have as Christians, if the Holy Spirit is in us, and then the implications of this, that precisely because we are indwelt by the Spirit, and therefore children of God, and we can't just live as we did when we were in the flesh. Right? That's essentially, I think, what he's saying. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he's saying simply, as Christians, we are not obligated to indulge the desires of the sinful nature anymore. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are not debtors to the flesh anymore, right? The flesh is not our master anymore. It's still there, but it doesn't dominate us as it did before. We're not slaves to the flesh. If we indulge the desires of the flesh, because there we see that we still could do that, right? Do you feel that dynamic? The sinful nature is still there. It still calls you to be bitter. Still calls you to be sexually immoral. Still calls you to be sinfully angry. Still calls you to be selfish. Saying, come, obey me. If you do, which we all do at times, right? If we do, the outcome of living according to the flesh is death. So you could think of it this way. Soon as you start obeying the flesh... You're on a new path. And where does that path lead? Death, right? Now, obviously, as Christians, we have a good shepherd who takes his staff and goes, get off that path. Get, get back on there, right? And we know that every true believer won't ultimately end in, reach the end of that path. He will lead us on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But that path of following the flesh leads to destruction. And... We are not to do that anymore. We're not to live according to the flesh. Rather, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which I always say, it reminds me of Braveheart, the movie, right? Ah! <laughs> right? That's what we're to do to the flesh. We're not to be nice to it. We're not to, you know, take it easy on it. We're to say, ah! By the Spirit, right? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're to say no to it renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we do not die 
And if we do that, we're on a different path, a path that leads to life, right? If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's our life right now, right? We all exp- we're in that. And then verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So, here, he's giving us the reason why we must not follow the flesh, but now must put the desires of the flesh to death. For we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have a new relationship with God. It, we are His adopted children. How do we know that? Because we've received the spirit of adoption. Because the spirit, by the spirit, we cry out to God, Abba, Father, right? If you're a Christian, you, the spirit of God teaches your heart that you have a new relationship with God. You relate to Him differently now, right? Now He is not a judge in the sky condemning you. You know that you have been forgiven and you know that you've been adopted and you cry out to him, Abba, Father. You draw near to his throne of grace with confidence because you know he's your father. He always welcomes you into his presence. You are forgiven. And even though he chastises you when you go astray, he says, get back on that path. He does it because he loves you, right? So if you have the spirit, if you are following the lead of the Spirit, it's revealing the fact you, have, you are the adopted children of God because the Spirit of God is empowering you and He is the Spirit of adoption. And He confirms that to your soul. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I think that's describing a subjective thing in your heart, right? Every true believer who has the Spirit The Spirit convinces, assures their soul that they are the children of God, right? Now, sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we go back to acting like a slave, right? That our relationship with God depends on us being really good. And if we're bad, we're we're out. He's the slave driver who will whip us. But no, the Spirit reminds us afresh and afresh that we are the children of God. And then finally, verse 17 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so all of this is this adoption that we have. It's in Christ, right? Through our union with Christ, we receive his righteousness and our sins are credited to him and paid for. Through our union with Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and gives us new spiritual life. Through our union with Christ, the Son, we become sons and daughters of God. And all of this is conveyed to us by the Spirit. In a sense, the Spirit unites us to Christ. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, right? So the Spirit gives us faith. We are united to Christ. We receive all these blessings. And adoption is one of those blessings. But as soon as you say, I am a child of God. And I think it's... It's actually important that he uses the language of son. You daughters, it's true, you are a daughter of God. But there's a sense in which your status before God is that of a son. Because what is the difference between a son and a daughter in the ancient world in a family? The inheritance, right? The son has an inheritance from the father. Ah, so when he says... We, all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. And you daughters say, well, I don't like that. I want to be a daughter of God. Well, you are a daughter of God, but you're also, in a sense, sons of God in this, in this sense, that you have an inheritance from the Father. That we are all co-heirs with the Son. That's the way to look at it. We're the bride of Christ. We're going to share in His inheritance. All that is His is now become ours in Him, Right? And what is that inheritance? I say the inheritance is the future glory of the new creation. Now, why would I say that? Does anyone have any ideas? Why would I say the future glories of the new creation? That's not there in that text. 
Does anyone have any idea? Because if you read on in verses 18 and following, that's what he begins talking about, right? He, be, he says, the glories that await us, the, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glories that are to come. And then he talks about how the creation is groaning until that day of redemption and how even our bodies will be redeemed and our adoption will be revealed. So what he's going to go on to say, as we'll see next week, is he's going to talk about the nature of this inheritance and this future glory that we have with Christ. And what we will see is that it is resurrection life with Christ in the new creation. That's your inheritance. Pretty good. I mean, it's not like a Lamborghini or anything, but pretty good. Yeah, I would say it's about the best possible thing you could ever have, right? Fellowship with God through Christ, your great bridegroom, in a glorified body, in a creation freed from the curse and every effect of sin. In other words, the full experience of Sabbath rest. Praise God. Just this last thing here. Christian, we should not live with a sense that we are fundamentally guilty before God, but with a sense of joy-filled liberation that we are no longer condemned before Him because we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you're not convicted of your sin. That doesn't mean that every day you don't ask, forgive us of our sins. But that's a relational dynamic. You are no longer condemned before your Father. And that will never change. Also, we should not relate to God as if we were merely His slave. I did bad today, so I'm going to be punished. I did good today, so He'll like me. But rather as His adopted children, whom He loves and accepts, whom He protects and provides for, no matter what. Third, precisely because we are God's adopted children, we ought to live like it. Right? So if you are a son of God, what is it about sons? What is it that's different about my son? He, he bears my image. right? You say, you look just like your father. Well, we're sons of God. And we are being renewed by the Spirit into the image of our Father. And so we are to live that identity out by no longer following the old man, the nature we inherited from Adam, by putting that and its desires to death by the power of the Spirit and to obey, to seek to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law, to obey Him out of gratitude, out of love for our Father. Fourth, we have confidence to do this by the knowledge that the Holy Spirit dwells in us to make us able to obey God's law. So, under the old covenant, God said, here are the, my law on tablets of stone. Now do it. But there wasn't the regeneration of heart. In the new covenant, he says, I will write my law upon your heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. So now, when he says, obey my commands, we are encouraged to do it because we know we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, right? So that by walking by the Spirit... We can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Not perfectly, but truly. Finally, our future inheritance ought to give us joy and hope. Both our resurrection, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, know that one day He's going to raise your bodies from the dead. And that you are a co-heir with Christ of the glories to come. The glories of the new creation. That ought to affect your life right now. You don't have it yet, but you know it's coming, right? So that ought to give you hope. Like an Israelite walking through the wilderness, knowing he's headed toward Canaan. So in this wilderness life, you're motivated to keep going because you know you're headed toward that glory. So it give you hope. should give you joy. All right, let's pray together. If you have questions, please feel free to come and talk with me after class here. Father, thank you for... Our time in this passage of Scripture, what a joy it is to take a passage of Scripture like this and open it up together and to consider what it means and how, how it applies to our lives as your people. We thank you for the truths revealed here, truths that are so glorious that we would never dare to claim the promises of this passage if you did not tell us that they are ours 
in a text like this. We thank you for the fact that there is no condemnation before you anymore for us who are in Christ. Thank you that you have sent the person of your spirit to indwell us. Thank you that he has liberated us from slavery to sin and our flesh which hated your law and that he's enabled us to begin serving you and obeying you. Thank you that you've given us life and peace, well-being and wholeness even in this life and the hope of glory in the world to come. Please let these truths sink into our souls and renew our minds and strengthen us spiritually. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.